Let me uh, read John chapter 13, 1 through 17, and hopefully we can talk about most of it before we leave and go home this afternoon. John 13, 1 through 17. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil had already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose up from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you would, by your Holy Spirit's power, minister to us as we soften and submit our hearts to your word. This afternoon, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'll just talk about verse 17 to start because often when, we, when I teach and, and give an exposition, I never get to the last verse that I read. And it's very important. It said, blessed are you if you do what Jesus is commanding here. And the Bible often says, blessed is the man who does this or that. Psalm 1 being one of the greatest examples, or at least one of the most memorable ones. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in this. Something like that. I messed it up, didn't I? I was just testing you. You, you passed. But the, and, and, and it's definitely true that that word is, is talking about happy people. And I've heard it preached right, but it's so much more when you study it in the Greek as it's mentioned here. It is a word that is used by these people who speak Greek for the different pantheon of God's that they were referring to, like Zeus or Apollos. And, and the reason why they would only speak um, uh, this word in reference to a god like Zeus or the different gods is because they had all the resources, uh, all the power, all the prestige and glamour to be this joyful and this happy. And so when Jesus comes along which we could never comprehend how controversial Jesus really was in our culture. And really, no, nobody can, but other cultures can, I think, a little bit more than ours because we don't live in a shame and honor culture. Jesus comes along and we've been taught the word and it says you have to... Uh, hate your father and your mother in order to follow after me, your brothers and sisters. If you don't, you have no part with me. To us, that, that's a pretty severe statement. We seek to understand it. We want to know what it means because obviously it doesn't mean that we're to hate our father and mother because we're supposed to honor them. 
But it does mean something. It's, it's, we're to follow Jesus before anything or anyone. Well, in, in African culture, where I've been the last 12 years, and really Asian culture, South American culture, these shame and honor cultures, that is their single greatest difficulty is stepping out from the authority of their parents when the authority of their parents violates following Jesus Christ. It is a huge, massive struggle. Something I, that, that, those verses just come alive to me having been living in Africa. Didn't mean much back then uh, in that regard. And, um, and so he was incredibly controversial. And he says stuff like this. Blessed is the person who speaks the word, essentially. And that's the main meaning of the text we'll talk about at the end. So we have been told by Christ that we can experience the very divine joy that was only in reference to these false gods that were spoken of by the people who spoke Greek in the New Testament. We can have that joy. And we can have that happiness. But we have a job to do. We must do what he says in order to partake of this joy. So, this, back to verse 1, is the beginning of what is really, some refer to it as the treasure of the Gospels, and that is the upper room discourse. Jesus Christ has four major discourses in the Gospel. Four teachings. You have the Sermon on the Mount given to us in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. You have the kingdom parables given to us in Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 15 and 16. You have the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. And and that first long discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, the end of it in Matthew 7, it says, He was one who spoke with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. I mean... That, that verse right there is like he blew these people's minds. And it wasn't that Jesus Christ was this charismatic, dynamic preacher. That he got in front of people and people were so moved by his skill. That's not the case. It's that Jesus Christ spoke truth to these people. Not in a way that truth has been spoken of, but He spoke the truth undefiled perfectly because there has been such a misinterpretation by the Jews of another sermon given on another mount, which they have based their entire religion on, and that is Judaism. And Jesus needed to bring clarification of the Sermon on the Mount of another mount that Moses gave on Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, in that you cannot obey the Ten Commandments, you're all guilty. And in bringing that clarification, he had to bring an amplification saying, your standards of righteousness are much lower than God's standards of righteousness. So when he talks, uh, when, when the crowd says, man, he's one who spoke with authority, it, it's speaking of that this person spoke with pure and undefiled truth, washing that entire congregation with the word of God coming from the word of God, Jesus Christ. It's a truth that rings so deep within image bearers, even if those image bearers are estranged from God. That's the authority that's being talked of in Matthew 7. Let, let, me, let me just speak on that more because when he talks about adultery, just to prove it along the line, when he talks about adultery, it can't mean what they meant, thought it meant. It absolutely can't. The standards that God has, though I don't think we could really ever comprehend the perfect standards of righteousness, the perfect holiness of God, and that is an absolute prerequisite before any of us can enter into heaven, before any of us can enter the Holy of Holies or or be in the presence of our Father after we die. 
I don't think we can comprehend that, but certainly being image bearers of God, when he spoke and clarified about adultery, that's the authority that the congregation understood. It's like, yeah, this, these other guys have been off. These other guys don't understand. They're not understanding, but we didn't understand. But what he just said about adultery, it must be true. And this, you know what he said. He said, it, it, you've heard it said before not to commit adultery. But I say unto you, he who lusts in his heart is guilty of adultery. Well, of course that's true. Which one of us are going to go home, go to our wives and say, hey, wife, I saw a beautiful woman in town. Absolutely gorgeous. And to be honest with you, I guess a small confession. I've been thinking about her sensually for the last five hours. But I want to encourage you, wife, I did not really do it physically. Do you think it would still go well for you and you would get a pat on the back? Of course the standards that Jesus just spoke about is absolutely true and it's so authoritative, not just because Jesus spoke it, which it is, but it's because it's true. It's true and people can understand that ring of truth that C.S. Lewis talked about in his heart. They're like, yes, absolutely. That's a man who speaks with authority. We've messed it up for thousands of years. We've created a whole religion trying to obey God and in our obedience to this law, thinking we were right with him and we can never be right with him without a true, perfect, righteous sacrifice. That makes sense. It's not that complicated and yet our pride and selfishness and, and, and whatever it is that causes us to not understand truth, not follow truth, the deception of our own personal will messes us up and entire religions can be birthed out of this. But then he comes along in the Sermon on the Mount and boom, he addresses it. The point in spending so long trying to explain that as truth cleanses the environment. And we're going to learn that's what Jesus is teaching us to do with the foot washing. And so he, you have these things and it says in there, now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come, they should depart from this world to the father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So you have... The beginning of the treasure of all the four major discourses, and they call it the treasure, not that the others aren't as equally as important, but this is unique and it's special. It's the longest, and it's at this time just for his disciples. At, at, at the beginning of it, it's for all 12, including the one who never got born again. He's never really taken a bath where he got salvation. And Jesus still washes his feet. It's a treasure because this entire night is dominated by the love of Jesus Christ. And I grew up real rough. Um, I, it, part of it is my personality. Other part of circumstances, a real abusive family, physical fighting, all this stuff. And, and then my mom would take us, you know, trying to, you know, I don't know, get church in us, get, you know, us to hear the gospel. She would take us to all these churches. Most of them were really weird. And we would go to these youth groups. And man, there was not a, I, this is my experience. This obviously isn't the truth. After you meet my past, you realize there is masculine men still in the world. And then I see you guys. Obviously, most of you are masculine, like 87% of you. I'm kidding. But I would, I, my mom took us to this youth group, and the, 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 the youth pastor was about the most feminine man you've ever met. And he didn't know how to deal with me and my brothers. And he just wrote us off, you know. And, and we, I, I don't blame him. We were really terrible kids. But when we talk about, when I say this night is dominated by love, sometimes I get so nauseated singing every worship song that is talking about love. He loves me, you know. <sighs> I get it. 
Love is foundational. It's awesome. It's amazing. But it's been so redefined by the world. So redefined when we talk about love, you know, singing a Whitney Houston song, I will always love you. I heard a guy singing it in the hallway earlier, you know, (laughs) at a men's conference. (laughs) And it was my friend, Jordan. It was so weird (laughs) to me. And he was singing the Joe Cons. It's they got a weird relationship. Deal with your issues, guys. And so we, and so it can become nauseating. It's like God loves you. You know, it, it is so much more profoundly strong than we realize when we talk about the love of God. So much more profoundly strong. It, it, it's, it's not weak. It's powerful. It's not feeble. It's steady. And this night begins with the love of God and it continues all through the night. This entire night is dominated by love and the heart of love, the foundation of it. Right from the get-go is humility. It's humility. I mean, it's so dominated by love that there's only one very gentle rebuke mixed in all of these chapters. And the, and the upper room discourse is John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. He ends, a, he ends it with a prayer that obviously his disciples heard. It's a night totally dominated by love. And there's only really one time where these disciples get rebuked. And I, I, you almost want to sit there. And when I was young and reading this, I'm like, rebuke him more, Jesus. When I'm a little older in the Lord, I'm like, thank God for not rebuking them more, Jesus, because I can identify with these disciples. The rebuke is in, is in John 16, actually, when Jesus is continuously loving on them, prophesying over them, promising them amazing things where I'm going to prepare a place in my father's house are many mansions. Don't worry, even though I go, I'm going to send a helper, just a night dominated by humble love, which really that's what love is. It's humble. And in John 16, he says, you know, I've told you I'm going to be with my father and sorrow has filled your hearts and not one of you asked me where I'm going. And in other words, you don't, you don't have concern for me. Your concern is still for yourselves, disciples. It's still for you. You're not, you, I mean, think of the magnitude of him going to be back with his father, the reunion they're going to have, all eternity past. Uh, he's been with his father and and the Holy Spirit in perfect harmony, and he comes down, and he's with us, and we're terrible to him, and he still is kind and humble and loving towards us, and now he's saying, I'm going to die for you, and then I get to be with my father, and you don't even care. And then he moves on, and he continues to bless them. So this is a night dominated by love. The first thing is you have a love stated. It says there that he loved his own, and he loved them too the end. He loved him to the end. This is different than than us telling our children, I have loved you from the day you were born and I love you every day in between until now. That is not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying that he's loved them fully to the end and to the end fully. That he has loved these 12 men perfectly with absolute, perfect, holy righteousness. And none of us can say that about our family members, I think, right? I know I can't. And this says this about Jesus Christ, our King. Do you remember when Jesus is being tried? And he would say, if anyone has an accusation against me, let him say it. And nobody, not even his enemies, have any accusations against him of any wrongdoing. Can you imagine us going home tonight, wife? If you have any accusations of anything I've done wrong, speak it now or forever hold your peace. I mean, they could rattle off a list, a list of things that we've done wrong. Especially Joe Kahn's wife. It's this. 
He loved them to the end. This means Jesus Christ loved them fully to the end, 100%. But this teaches us what love is. Love, soul, the heart of love is humility and sacrifice. Humility and sacrifice. I am, I'm always interested in trying to understand things. You know, uh, some years ago, I, I, I understood that while I preached, that, that I would tell people the manifestations of sin, that I actually at the time I thought, this is sin. But when we say, what is sin? Most people will come and tell you, the manifestations of sin like strife and envy and murder and drunkenness and sorcery and adultery and fornication. That's all the manifestation of sin, but that's not really what sin is. Same thing with the church. Go up to somebody who says, what is the church? They will tell you a list of things of what the church does. The church is fellowship and opening the Bible and going through it and it's prayer and it's communion. No, that's what the church does. The church is an assembly of people who have the same confession about the same Christ and our Savior, Jesus Christ and our Lord. That's what the church is. Well, sin is not drunkenness. That is a manifestation of sin. The essence of sin is preferring anything or anyone above God. And that makes, it, when you define it that way, which that's what it is, you realize very quickly that, man, there are, we are prone to sin even if you're not prone to do drugs. It's, you can take the good things in our lives and make him the number one thing in your life, and that is idolatry and sin. Like children and a wife and a career. And we get the label, man, he really loves his wife, or he really loves his children, or he's a really hard worker, when in reality, those are our idols because we've put them before God himself. And that's where sin becomes so elusive and duplicitous. Well, I think this story here in John 13 is giving us really the foundation or the heart of what love really is, and it's humility. Jesus is perfect humility. Selfless humility is the soul of love. Let me put it this way, only humble people love. Our capacity to love is directly related to our capacity to humble ourselves in front of the world. I mean, it ends so many arguments with our wives, doesn't it? For, for those of us who argue with our wives. It's just like, I mean, it's amazing how many hours we can go on defending ourselves. Just, oh, I'm right, woman. You... you you got to, Jesus called women woman, so just deal with it, you know, and I'm right. <laughs> oh, man. And, and until that time where humility comes in, and it doesn't matter who's right anymore because both have said so many terrible things, and you come in and you say, Wife, I'm wrong, and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? No, 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 nothing else attached to it. After that, you don't go, do you have something to say to me? <laughs> None of that. It's just, I'm wrong. I've said things, and I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? And then humility is when they don't instantly forgive, and they're still like, you are wrong. You're darn right you're wrong. And you're like, listen, I said I'm sorry. None of that. You take it. You take it like Jesus took the beatings. You take it and you just say, yeah, unload. I deserve it. I deserve it. Only humble people truly love. The higher you go in concern for yourself, the higher you go, uh, excuse me, the lower you go in concern for yourself, the higher you go in concern for others. Reciprocating love is not the purest form of love's. 
Biblical love is serving and giving without any love in return, like Jesus is doing in this very story. And and, and because of this, the way that you can identify those who are really loving people the most is not trying to find the person who is loving those who love him back. It is finding the person who loves those who are his enemies and who hate him and who use him and who persecute him. That's how you find somebody who's really behaving like Jesus. They are being kind and generous and gracious and forgiving to somebody who is abusing them terribly. 1 Corinthians says, love seeks not its own. And chapter 13, 2 Corinthians 12, 14 and 15, the Bible says, now for the third time I am ready to come to you, Paul says. And I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. You ever, you ever get the sense that a lot of people just seek your stuff, your resources, Really, maybe your personality that is likable and they just want to be friends and they just seek something about you that makes them feel good rather than seeking for your perfect good. Not Paul. He says, I seek not yours. Not a paycheck from the church. Not this, not that. I seek you. I want you. I love you. I like you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved by you. So the more he's loving the Corinthians, the less they love him. I don't even know how to exposit that. The more that, I don't know what that means. Does that mean he'll never leave us, Paul? We can treat him like jerks and he's still going to help us. So go ahead and really treat him like you feel. And he would. Not that he doesn't bring corrections. Not that he doesn't give stern counsel when they're really messing up. But nevertheless, he continues to love them. We serve an awesome God. Jesus Christ in this story, he, he begins to wash their feet now. So you have that love demonstrated and you secondly you have love rejected why does the bible keep on mentioning judas over and over if i don't know i think he's like number one or number two in in the gospels on how i'm being mentioned the most it constantly mentions judas i think for really two reasons maybe there's more and i think these are at least two good or primary reasons is is one of them is it provides a contrast of who Judas is and who Jesus is. I'll give you three reasons. Secondly, it provides a contrast also of how to love, like I'm talking about here, and how to be selfish. And thirdly, he mentions it in the Upper Room Discourse, and he actually, um, I think, is mentioning Judas to let these guys know, Judas is not getting one over on me, guys. I tell you these things in advance, like he's going to betray me. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to rise again. I'm telling you this so that you might believe. Don't ever think for one second that Judas or those soldiers got one over on me. And constantly he's doing that. Not so that he can be braggadocious, but so that he can help us understand who's in control. And it's certainly not Joe Biden. It's certainly not Russia. It's certainly not China or no one in Africa. The collective resources or nuclear power on planet Earth do not have the power to go against Jesus Christ. They're out of their weight class. And that's what he's doing with his disciples. He's like, Judas ain't getting one over on me, guys. I'm letting him betray me. Nobody takes my life. Nobody. I lay it down freely. No one has the power to do it. He says, I could call some angels. I mean, I don't even need to call angels. I'll destroy them. Light just bursting out of him. Soldiers falling on their faces. You can take me. Thank you for letting us arrest you. 
You have love rejected here. Judas is rejecting even after his feet are being washed by Jesus Christ. And thirdly, you have that love demonstrated. He's washing their feet. In Luke chapter 22, 7 through 30, I won't read it, but there is an indication that one of the times that the disciples are arguing over who's the greatest, boy, which I, I, I really, I've been, I pray, Lord, if I'm ever so deceived that I begin to argue who's over the greatest, which I don't think that it's like we think it is. Like, oh, I'm greater or you're greater. I think there were circumstances that really the Bible is, the Bible's the master of understatements. You know, in the beginning, God created the earth, period. It's like, do you know how many billions of trillions of infinite nuclear explosions have to happen for that to be accomplished? The Bible is the master of understatements. So when it's talking about who is the greatest, I think there were circumstances surrounding the argument that often the Bible just doesn't bring to light. But in Luke 22, it may be the indications at this time that when they got into the upper room, the argument ensued because the slave is supposed to wash the, uh, the, the guest feet and they wear sandals. So this is customary in homes and the slaves nowhere around. So the lowest in the company is, it, it, it needs to wash the feet. And they start arguing who's the greatest. Well, John's the youngest. He's got to wash. Well, you know what? I may be the youngest, but Peter, you're the dumbest. So you wash his feet. Or I'm this. And they, they start arguing. And, you know, it's, and Jesus begins to take off. And he girds himself. And he tells them to sit down. Now they're probably embarrassed and Peter's going to be the one. No, I ain't going to let this happen. And he begins to wash. But that love is being demonstrated by Jesus Christ. And in an amazing way. And Jesus, is, he's not just doing it to, to teach them a lesson, which there is a lesson that he teaches. He's doing it because he is a humble man. He's a humble man. God in the flesh who created all beings who've worshipped at his feet for all eternity. And now he stoops down and washes men's dirty feet. It truly is an amazing scene. Jesus says in 1 John 3.18, My little children, let us not love in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Jesus stooped down to wash their feet, not from a position of weakness. He did not do it because no one else would do it. And he just thought, stop fighting, guys. And he was worried about the argument. He washed his disciples' feet from a position of strength. And humble people are always more loving and they are always stronger than the people who are being prideful. And then you have love misunderstood. Peter goes on and does his thing here. He says, Jesus, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus says to him, what I'm doing now you don't understand. But you will know after this. It's interesting that they wouldn't wash each other's feet or wash, you know, maybe one of us like, I'll wash Jesus's feet, but I'm not going to wash the rest of your nasty feet. Who knows what they were saying? And the previous chapter, John chapter 12, it talks about that these, these people, I think it's John chapter 12. Yeah, it's right here. That he, they didn't understand the Old Testament prophecies. They didn't understand what it meant that he was going to get on a donkey and ride into Jerusalem and, and Hosanna, Hosanna. And they didn't understand that um, also, Luke 19 indicates that in the tearful entry, that triumphal entry, that Jesus says, if you knew the day that I was coming, um, you would rejoice, but uh, your children are going to suffer. Jerusalem's going to be burned because you don't know the day 
Um, and Sir Robert Anderson in his book, The Coming Prince, says that this is actually a reference to Daniel 9's prophecy, that they could have pinpointed the day that Jesus was riding into Jerusalem to be cut off from his people. And they weren't ready for it because they were deceived. They didn't understand Old Testament prophecy. Have you ever asked yourself the question, how is the Old Testament prophecy that seems so clear to us, and I know we have the New Testament, but it's so clear to us that even without the New Testament, that this has to be a physical um, coming of a Messiah and not some other thing. And, and, and so on the list goes, even if they believed the physical coming of the Messiah, they didn't understand all these Old Testament prophecies. It says that after he was glorified in John chapter 12, that they understood the prophecy of him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and possibly, and I believe, even Daniel chapter 9. As Sir Robert Anderson points out in his book, The Coming Prince. The word glorified, it just means lifted up. It was after the cross, after he was lifted up and he sacrificed himself and he rose again that now the Holy Spirit fills these men and they begin to understand. Well, I think that there may have been, I know there's speculation, one person who did believe, at least in part, when Jesus told those he was around that he was going to die on the cross. And that was Mary in John chapter 12, who broke the alabaster box of ointment. And he said, let her alone because she is anointing me for my burial. And they, they're, they're criticizing her, especially Judas. He's probably the ringleader, you know, as he's stealing the money. We could have given this to the poor. He's like, let her alone. She's anointing me for my burial. It may mean, and I'm not saying 100%, I... Maybe uh, I'm speculating and Pastor Joe can correct me later, but it may mean that she actually believed in the words of Christ when he says, I'm going to go die on the cross. He said it two different times in Luke chapter 9. And the second time he says it in Luke chapter 9, wouldn't you know what happened? A dispute arises amongst them. Who is the greatest? And it says before that dispute happened, they didn't understand what he was talking about. It was only after he was glorified that they understood all these Old Testament prophecies. But maybe Mary believed his words. Do you know where she was at every time she's mentioned in the New Testament, which is three? You remember? At his feet. He was glorified. When she's at his feet, weeping and worshiping and praising and sacrificing, she has to look up. He was already glorified in her heart because she was always at his feet worshiping. And I don't care how smart somebody is, how intellectual, how genius, our intellect can never cause us to see spiritual things clear. It's only Jesus Christ being number one in our life and sitting on the throne of our hearts that we can see clearly and see Old Testament prophecy clearly. And instead of these men bowing down to his feet and each other's feet, he has to be the example of humility and love, and he gets on his knees and washes their feet. What a mighty God we serve. So you have love demonstrated. Number four, you have love misunderstood. Peter's just like, you're not going to wash. You don't understand now. You're going to understand. You're not understanding now, not because Peter was dumb. Not because Peter was um, ill-equipped intellectually to understand something as simple as I'm going to die on the cross. They knew what a cross was. They knew what the Romans did to people and hanging them up. No. Peter doesn't understand because Christ will and his throne is not number one in his heart. That's why. You don't understand now. You'll never wash my feet, Lord. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. I don't think Jesus Christ is saying you have no part and you'll never be saved and you're going to hell. I think what's going on here is, is 
you're already bathed, Peter, so you're already born again, or maybe, and there's debate on this, that you got, you'll get born again later, but you're guaranteed you're going to be born again. You're already bathed, but because you've walked through the world and you've been polluted with your own will and your own desires, and you've been polluted with Judas' uh, diplomatic talk about money, and you've been polluted about this, you need your feet washed because you've been walking around in the world. And that's what we're doing at this men's conference. We're just getting together and getting cleansed with the word of God and fellowship and prayer and worship. Because we need cleansing often, don't we? We just got back from work or, you know, stuff going on as we've been mentioned over and over with family and all this different stuff. We need cleansings. Maybe some of you are watching just nonsense on television. And it's just polluting you, polluting you. We need cleansing. We need to be washed by the word of God, who is Jesus Christ. But not all of you, he says. There's, there's somebody here who's not clean. It's Judas. And then he gives that command, and this is love commanded now. Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have also done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He's saying, listen, I'm your master. I'm sending you. You're not greater than me. And you need to wash each other's feet. You need to do what I'm doing after you understand what I'm doing in terms of the spiritual aspect of the understanding is what he's telling Peter and he's telling his disciples. So we need to wash the brethren's feet. We need to wash the body of Christ. And we need to wash those people who aren't clean, like Judas. And we need to wash... Uh, 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 the body of Christ. That's the rest of the disciples. They re represent the body of Christ in the world. Now, I think there is a lot of people who have not done justice what Jesus is saying here as they've taught this. Of course not here. <laughs> and then they just kind of say, no, this is just a call to serve. This is a call to be humble. This is a call to give humble service. And really, that's not what Jesus is exactly saying. What Jesus is saying is what I've done to you do to others. Jesus being the word of God, washing their feet, we're to do likewise. We are to bring the word of God to every situation that we're in, no matter if it's the body of Christ or our colleagues who are unsaved at work. That's what he's commanding us. It's not just an ambiguous, abstract, go and serve people. No, it's saying go and serve people by washing their feet. And serving people and washing their feet is speaking the word of God. That's what Jesus is saying. It's the most powerful weapon we have. The other day, my, my youngest daughter is... We named her JL. We didn't realize how prophetic that would be. She is a wild person. The power of God, it means. You remember JL in Judges 4, driving the tent peg in the king's... I mean, you guys who are construction workers, you got to learn how to hammer. That lady knew how to drive a tent peg before she drove it in the temple of Sisera's ear, or his temple, his head. We named my daughter after that because I like the story. It has been so true. She drowned in the pool, got brain damage, and not only did God bring her back to life, he killed her brain. And she is one of the most wild people I've ever known, my youngest daughter. She's crazy. And she, when she is wanting to encourage, she can be the greatest encourager. When you're on her bad side, it is like demons coming out. The other day... She's fighting with her older sister, and she says, I hope something bad happens to you, Layla. You know, <laughs> one of you can relate. <laughs> and I'm like, man, what do I do? And it's such a terrible attitude. I get it. Wash the situation with what? The word of God. 
And so I say to her, do not repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't be weird with your Bible quotes like I believe in Isaiah chapter 26. It does say, by the way, you know, just speak out the word. A lot of us need to remind our friends a wife is a good thing. And when he gets one, obtains favor from the Lord. Not, not, not the Bible doesn't say there in Proverbs 18 that a good wife is a good thing. It is a wife. It's like, well, you don't know my wife. She's a real hag, you know. It's like, no, no, no. Bring cleansing to that situation to a man who's being negative about his wife. We should never speak bad about our wives. We should never speak bad about our pastor. And I mean that. We need a little bit more loyalty in the church. We're imperfect pastors serving imperfect people who have to be graded every single week multiple times by our congregations. Have a little bit more humble love and wash the situation when people are gossiping with the word of God. I think that was like a biased pitch. I'm a senior pastor. Stop it. You know. What is Jesus saying? The greatest cleansing that we can bring to this world, the greatest power is not some political candidate. It is the word of God spoken by God's people, cleansing every situation and atmosphere we're in. That's what Jesus is saying to us. I remember meeting my my wife's grandmother for the first time. You know, just she went to be with the Lord. Something I noticed incredible. She quoted scripture all day long. It wasn't weird. It wasn't, you know, somebody would say something, but I don't know if we can do this. She's like, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens. She had a, the, the Bible, a verse for every situation. And you know what? I started to realize every time she was around, She brought cleansing and purity and strength and power to every discussion. And we can get caught. I mean, guys, we need to make a habit speaking forth God's word in our workplace. We need to make a habit speaking forth God's word by memory to our children. We need to make a habit speaking forth God's word to our wife, to our unbelieving friends and to our believing friends in the body of Christ. And don't apologize for it and don't feel weird about it and don't think that you're at risk of not looking cool because of it. Speak God's word in the workplace. Speak it at your church. Speak it at your home. Speak it in politics. Speak it everywhere because it's a lot more powerful than all the nations combined on earth. And we, man, we can memorize things because we watch the news so much. And guys, I'm not trying to, I'm that, I'm that guy just nauseated with Fox News. Or now all the other news is like, yeah. We need to speak the word of life. I mean, these people are so out of their way, class. Jesus Christ is in absolute control And the greatest power of God is his humble love. And we need to cleanse the atmosphere by doing what he commands us to do. And we need to memorize the scripture and it needs to be spoken from our lips. So I encourage you. I'm going to end right now. I encourage you. Would you make it a habit if you don't already do this to speak the word of God? I mean, we've stood up and said, okay, people who get, want to be born again, stand up. Or people who have prodigals, stand up. Or people who are struggling in there, stand up. That's fine. That's awesome. But this may be a unique thing I'm asking us to apply and make a habit of. But it's not unique to, to, to Scripture. It's not u- unique to the commands of Christ. Back in Deuteronomy, it says, make sure the word of God is on your mouth, on your eyeballs, on your hands, on your feet. Everywhere you go, the word of God is there. 
Develop a habit of speaking the word of God everywhere you go. That's what I think the Lord came, or the Lord sent me here to tell you today. And I think it's from his word. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for sending your son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, our king, that you came. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you reside in us, giving us the strength and the power. I don't know in my own heart, I don't know it's to look cool or to be affected by the world system, but Lord, I want to speak your word more because it's powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. I want to speak your word to my wife more, who is such a treasure to me. I want to speak the word to my children more, who are such a joy, so unique, so precious, so loved by you. But beyond that, I want to speak the word to cleanse my work atmosphere when I go around the construction site. Even when I'm I'm building, Lord, in Africa, unbelievers around all the time, speaking derogatory about their wives, constantly talking about the issues of government, complaining often about situations. I pray you'd give me wisdom how to speak your word that you would supernaturally bring to mind the scriptures that we have been taught and that we have read and that we have studied and we've devoted ourselves to every morning. I pray we'd be a people that cleanse every environment we're in with the word of God and begin to wash the filth of the believers as they walk around in the world and give baths to the unbelievers and watch them get born again all by the power of your word. Help us, Lord, not to walk away in sentimentality today, just having an emotional ascent and saying, yes, I want to do that, but may your Holy Spirit work in us that we may go make this a habit in our lives and watch the power of your word work in every situation. I pray you bless these men for coming out on Saturday. And I pray you'd pour out your Holy Spirit on all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.